Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, to be popular. Oh, to be famous. Oh, to bask in the adulation of others. The attraction of celebrity is so great that people will do all sorts of things to achieve it. Some will compromise their morals if they had any to begin with. Others will embellish the truth or even flat out lie, whether to build up their own record and reputation or to tear down those against whom they are competing. Some will cheat, whether it be on an academic test or in their work or their research or their reporting, or by taking performance-enhancing substances to give them advantage. Some will even carve up their bodies to gain attention, removing things in some places and implanting things elsewhere, and turning their bodies into canvases of excessive human graffiti to cover up the masterpiece that God had painted in the womb. That's not to say that everyone who's become famous has gotten that way through underhanded means, of course. Many who gain the public's attention do it through actual merit, achieving worthwhile things that contribute to the well-being of their neighbors by following the rules and not resorting to trickery or gimmicks. Along the way, they sinned like everyone else, of course, but shortcuts and compromises were not the primary or even a substantial factor in their results. Contrast our methods and our motives of achieving popularity, if you will, with those of Jesus. Our Gospel lesson this morning was St. John's account of the triumphal entry to Jerusalem. Just five days before Jesus will be arrested in secret, tried in travesty, tortured in shame, and crucified in humiliation. Here, though, he is at his pinnacle of popularity. Even in our time of near-instantaneous mass communication, there's rarely been so swift a plummet from the heights of favor to the depths of abandonment as Jesus experienced. Even the worst offenders today seem to have their vocal and active supporters well after the majority's adulation has turned to scorn. It has a lot to do with the fact that in spite of all of the attention and the popularity that Jesus had accumulated, it wasn't something that He was seeking. While He made use of the crowd's attention as an opportunity to proclaim the Gospel of the Kingdom of God, that wasn't what made Him attractive to most of His hearers. To them, His preaching was powerful and engaging, but it wasn't the main thing. His message of trust in God for forgiveness and salvation was too intangible for them. What really made Jesus popular were the miracles. Water to wine, healings of all sorts, endless supplies of food. Even word of the miracles that were done in private, like walking on water and calming storms, had probably gotten around through the grapevine because... The disciples, after all, were only human too. And now Jesus had pulled off another doozy, raising Lazarus from the dead just a few miles east of Jerusalem. Word had spread fast. 
Jesus had raised others from the dead before Lazarus, of course. The widow's son at Nain, for example, and also Jairus' daughter. Those miracles were just as powerful, just as impressive, even if they had not been dead and buried for four days like Lazarus. What made this miracle so important, though, was that it happened right out in the suburbs of the most important city in the region. One that was now swollen with Jews coming for the Passover. Many people heard about it as rapidly as was possible in those pre-Twitter days. With thousands flocking to Jerusalem, all those travelers coming from or passing through Bethany would have heard of this miracle and brought news of it to the big city. Now the news that the man himself, the miracle worker, was coming to Jerusalem stirred the people into a frenzy. Gathering palm branches, the crowds lined the roads to see and give acclamation to this popular preacher. In fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus rides into the city on the back of a young donkey. It's not the powerful stallion of a conquering warrior king, but a humble beast of burden and a small immature one at that. The crowd doesn't mind the modest transportation, though. They elevate Jesus to a whole new level of popularity and esteem, something at the far reaches of what He had ever been called on a wide scale before. Jesus is proclaimed King of Israel, one sent by God for the rescue of His people. The further He rode, the more chatter ensued. The story of Lazarus' resurrection reaches more and more ears, and even more people are drawn to see and hear and adore Jesus. How strange then that St. John writes that the disciples didn't understand these things, but only remembered them much later. Certainly, if those who were only on the periphery of Jesus' ministry and miracles took these signs as being indicative of him fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, then we might certainly expect those who were closest to him, those who had traveled with him and learned from him for over three years, to grasp it too. But maybe the crowds didn't really get it either. Maybe they just wanted their bellies filled, their diseases healed, their infirmities corrected, and Perhaps they wanted a just and righteous kingdom established with the hated Romans and their lackey Herod thrown out. Anyone who could pull that off would be very popular indeed, even if he gave any indications of it, in fact. And Jesus had demonstrated most of the signs already. Expectations were high, and so were emotions. Not everyone was thrilled with the developments. The Pharisees argued among themselves about what to do. They're frustrated that Jesus had caught the wave of popularity despite all of their efforts to discredit Him and derail Him in the past and in the present. Their pride arises against Jesus' humility. Their ambition drives them against His spirit and path of servanthood. Their desire to have and to keep their own place in popular culture leads them to resistance and rebellion against the one who is fully obedient, even unto death. Jesus was right to warn His followers against the leaven of the Pharisees. Even just a little bit of that corrupt yeast can infiltrate the whole loaf of our beings, 
causing us to become puffed up just as real yeast inflates real dough. Why do we too, even we who come together here in worship, grumble and complain and plot against Jesus? We don't do it nearly so contemptibly as the Pharisees might have, or nearly so blatantly, of course, but we have our ways. We look for ways to undermine the kingdom, to overthrow the rightful king. We're just very subtle about it. What do you do in the name of comfort and popularity? Do you keep your faith under wraps, reluctant to give clear indication of Him who has claimed you as His own? The redemption price for you paid in blood? Do you choose to divert the fruits of your labor into a mushy applesauce of shiny, glittery things that will tarnish and fade, passing away in the blink of an eye, melting with the earth when the final fire comes? Do you focus your time and your energy on the pursuits of the shallow and passing things of this world, on empty pleasures that serve no God but yourself? When was the last time that you really followed the guidance of the small catechism and prepared yourself to confess your sins by considering how you have violated your vocations as citizen, worker, family member, and Christian? When did you last seriously measure yourself against the Ten Commandments, one by one? Our prayers and our confessions, although they are always led only by the Spirit, sometimes do turn somewhat shallow and trite and cold. They remain pleasing to God, though, not because they are carried to His ears through any power or righteousness within us, but only because He has commanded us to pray and to confess in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. It is His humility and His obedience and not your own which are counted to you as alien righteousness. Jesus acclaimed that first Palm Sunday, exalted Him, and gave Him the title King of Israel. But it was fleeting and fickle, shallow and hollow praise. His humility was very real, though, and His humiliation was not yet complete. The climax of that will come later on the cross, where in the ultimate mystery of the ages, the perfect becomes sin for you. The spotless lamb becomes your scapegoat. The author of life chooses death. His greatest humiliation becomes his greatest glory. It is for that one great, loved, lo great act of love and obedience, planned according to God's will from before time began, that the Father exalts him and gives Jesus the supreme name. Bend your knee and bow then to Him who is both humble and glorious. Confess Him with the church in heaven and on earth and kneel before His throne and before His altar, receiving the fruits of His cross. He empties Himself so that you might be filled with the good. It'll be easy to find lots of excuses this week to avoid coming to the more somber services. It's hard to contemplate the sorrow of Jesus' betrayal and to reflect upon His suffering and His death because then we have to confront the fact that we all contributed to it. 
The temptation is always to skip the ugliness and the pain and to seek the beauty and the comfort and yes, even the popularity of the resurrection. But it's really only popular within the church, isn't it? The world might accept that a man named Jesus died on a cross, but not that His death atoned for your sins. Certainly it doesn't accept that He rose again as proof and guarantee of His promises of forgiveness, salvation, and life everlasting in paradise. As Christians, we love that part. The Easter triumph and glory and joy. And we should, for God wants us to have it. But don't miss out on the discomfort too. It's good for us. We need to be reminded of just what happened and to be turned in repentance of our sins at every opportunity. That work of the Spirit is what binds us ever more closely to the suffering and the death of Jesus as well as to His eternal blessings. We need to remember just what was at stake as those Pharisees and as the world and as Satan and as all of our sins and our sinful nature drove Jesus to that cross. The whole world went after Him all right. They went after Him with all of its evil and its vengeance and its rage. And so did you and I. Though the Pharisees gained nothing out of it, by God's grace through faith in the suffering and death of Jesus, you have gained everything. To Him who was all humble, be all the glory, forever and ever. Amen.